what is it a Monday club and a Tuesday club uh, well there's Monday and the Tuesday club and then <laughs> when, he, when he texted me Tuesday there was no way I was going on Wednesday that much uh, that's fair enough <laughs> subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts the Sunday Papers on Off The Ball Now, Sunday Papers, great to have you with us. So I'll run you through the front pages. As you might imagine, the rugby dominates. So we've a picture here at the Sunday Independent and it's Matt Canson. Uh, just after he went over for uh, Ireland's second try, start of the second half and he's throwing the ball in the air and he's got Jimmy O'Brien for company. Undisputed number one is the headline, uh, but Sexton insists Ireland have won nothing yet is the front page of the Sunday Independent. Sunday Mirror, they've uh, Peter Mahoney, Post-match, giving a thumbs up to the camera. Worldies, Farrell praises Irish heroes as mighty boxer beaten, but Sexton urges caution. And then Ace Reese is a world champion. So Reese McGlenaghan, uh, crowned world champion. First ever Irish gymnast to be crowned a world champion. He won uh, gold on the pommel horse at the World Artistics Gymnastic Championships in Liverpool in the final yesterday, 23 years of age and he just missed out in Tokyo as well he was desperately unlucky at the last Olympic Games to miss out in Tokyo um, or sorry excuse me he finished 7th at Tokyo but he was uh, in the mix for uh, potentially medal places so a uh, big day for him we have Sunday Times and again it's Matt Canson see you in France which I guess was an aspect of yesterday Ireland will play South Africa on September 23rd in Paris Ireland lay down World Cup marker with victory over Springboks and then O'Neill hits back at critic Keith Andrews. This is Martin O'Neill, who's uh, taken aim at uh, Keith Andrews in his new autobiography, which we'll come to in just a moment. It's uh, serialised there in the Sunday Times. Uh, Sun Sport. Again, it's uh, Mac Hansen on the uh, top. Andy Slingen and the Rain World Champions KO'd. And then Erling Haaland uh, says scoring for Manchester City in the last minute yesterday one of the most nervous moments of my life he took a last minute penalty to win the game for City uh, Matt Doherty also on the back page of the Sun here insisting there's no personal issue between him and Antonio Conte and the Sun also on that back page have Reese to the top Reese McGlennon yesterday making history Ireland's first ever gymnastics world champion uh, Mail on Sunday Again, same picture, Matt Hansen. It was, I mean, it was an amazing moment when he went over. Ireland 19, South Africa 16. Ireland top of the world after defeating the reigning champion, says Rory Keane. Sunday World, if you're into this kind of thing, have a new format, new font on their uh, back page. So, box office is the headline. Ireland laid down a World Cup marker with thrilling win over the champions and Klopp's war chest is their other headline. So, Jurgen Klopp has been given the green light to embark on an overhaul of the Liverpool squad says uh, Kevin Palmer on the back page of the Sunday World very happy to say Clean Foley journalist and broadcaster here in studio as is Roy O'Connor of the Irish Independent you're both very welcome uh, you were at the Aviva Stadium last night I was even though at half time it was only six points apiece it was a bloody interesting six points apiece first half and then second half took off yeah yeah, no, it was. I thought I found it. I Neil, we'll come to it. I think Neil Francis is quite talk, talking down the quality that was on show and and yeah. takes almost a counterpoint view on it. But I thought it was a really high quality. Um, 
you know, sorry, I'm falling into the trap of calling it absorbing, uh, absorbing test match. But it was it it from minute one, the level of physicality on display was was off the charts. And look, there's an undercurrent there. Just going, is this healthy for the game in the long term? But there is still something fascinating about seeing players of that size thundering into each other it, with with such a level of ferocity and intensity. And but Bernard Jackman has the line in his piece. Um, he met one of the injured box he doesn't name him in the in the corporate box before the before the game he'd mm. been to the team hotel and you can almost like I can't do a South African accent so I'm not going to try but he said you know he <laughs> said on, to him I promise try. you the boys are effing up for this um, and they were and they tore into Ireland I mean I was talking to Brendan Moran from Sportsfile as I was leaving last night he said the sound of the collisions on the pitch was just breathtaking you know that the, 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 you could it's even in the full right stadium they're it, right yeah. up yeah, yeah we're miles away up the top um, and they heard you know the, it wasn't just it wasn't just the visual; it was the the, the the thundering nature of it, and and you can imagine that. So it was um, they threw everything at Ireland. Thought Peter Saftatoa just or the toy, he was just, everything he hit was just laced with venom. It was ridiculous. Sexton got nailed about four or five times just on that line. They're brilliant at it. That line where he just delivered a pass. It's not quite late, you know. It's not late enough to be against the rules, but it's late enough to leave Sexton in a heap on the ground. And Ireland found a way, you know. I thought I, I thought at six all at half time, I, and with Furlong Murray and Murray turned out to be a blessing in the skies, really. But um, and McCluskey in particular going off, I really feared for Ireland in that second half, and they proved me wrong. You know, a lot of stuff that I've been questioning in, in here and in the paper that I worried about this Irish pack, they proved me wrong, and that's 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 a great thing for them to be. Not that that's the important part, but like you know, they they've there's a lot less doubts about this Ireland team now than there was. You know, five thirty yesterday. Can I show you how uh, life's all about opinions? Hmm. <laughs> uh, Neil Francis, this was no thriller. This is the point about the quality. This yeah. was no thriller because he had opened by uh, referencing thriller in Manila. And if anybody says that this was a match for the purist, then they are sadly mistaken. I'll flick over to Bernard Jackman. At halftime, the score was six points apiece. One of the most entertaining 12-point halves I've watched. It was one for the purists, I admit, but the level of physicality in cat and mouse that we witnessed was right at the highest level of the game. So we have Neil Francis saying Neil the Francis says quality wasn't good. Bernard Jackman thought it was Neil great. Neil Francis says the box kicking from all the halfbacks was pub team standard. Well, it <laughs> wasn't a good day for kickers, <laughs> to be fair. I'm with they, them they got, the like, they, they got their selection of 10 wrong. Yeah. Their attack still leaves an awful lot to be desired. I mean, there was a couple of times in that second half where there was they had overlaps and rather than give the pass, they tucked and ran and it was criminal. But, I mean, he has a line in it and, like, Neil Fanson's an international second row himself and he says that Etzebeth and Diager are a long way short of the class of Bucky, Bucky's boat and Victor Matfield. The publicity machine tells us that these guys are superstars but the evidence suggests otherwise. Yeah. I'm sorry, he's obviously forgotten about the World Cup final where they mm. absolutely... Like monster, the England pack, the England pack that had monster Ireland a couple twice in the previous year had just destroyed New Zealand the week previously. Like that was one of the greatest four pack performances. I was there. I'll, I'll never forget the way they ground England at the submission that day. Look, this wasn't a World Cup final. I think they'll be better in ten months' time. Yeah. But to say that they're not that, that they're bang average is just. I think that's wrong. I mean, that that's about as a phenomenal player. He might not be the most visionary. I mean, he threw an unbelievable offload oh, for Lorenzo try. Like they yeah. show what they can do in the end, but um, I think that's unfair. I think that, well, that funny, diminishes even, um, what... He won't mind me saying it, but even 
during the match, I think at least three times, Rob Carney almost talking to himself in the studio said, it's a bet incredible. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Was, that was fantastic. He didn't, I don't think he got a chance at full time to mention it. But so are you more in the because it is. I mean, it's just so stark and interesting. But Francis point as well, Joe, is he, he's whichever you could see last night was they didn't have a kicker that they're missing Andrew Pollard. And yeah. that was a big factor. I mean, they left seven points at least mm. and they are more behind well, him and, fair, and some awful awful even even uh, touchline kicking him and Bernard Jackman agree on that point because yeah. Bernard Jackman does make the point the next time this is going to be in a neutral venue they will have a goal kicker and they will have someone who can play the percentages at 10 so that will strengthen them but I'm, I'm curious Rory do you are you of more in the Francis camp where you, he says this was a match of low quality no. and there were players out there who were so far out of their depth it was embarrassing or Bernard Jackman, who was saying the level of physicality, the cat and mouse was right at the highest level of the game. Like they're two. I thought it was a very right high, at the end of this. I thought it was a very high quality game. I mean, Frano has a cut off Robert Balakun. Um, he has a history of going after Ulster wingers. It didn't, you know, turned out pretty well for Tommy Bow, who gave zero out of ten in player ratings at the start of his career. Um, look, Vilemsa was out, was a wrong call and was the worst player in the pitch, and, and mm-hmm. arguably cost South Africa the game. Having not having a goal kicker, like when Larue came on in the second half. He made an awful difference. But just because Ireland neutralised South Africa doesn't make South Africa a bad team. I think the achievement of Ireland neutralising the mall and the scrum mm. can't be... The, you can't just say then turn around and say, oh, they're, they're, these are not good. Like, they are the world champions. Base, it was basically the pack that won the World Cup. So I, I think that's very unfair on what Ireland achieved yesterday. Um, I suppose what you could say is that the, the long, the length of the first half, the number of stoppages, it wasn't as flowing as, say, the New Zealand test, but that was never going to be that kind of game. This was quality in a different way. Um, this was Ireland finding ways to beat a team that can squeeze you and squeeze the life, you know, squeeze the life out of you until you've nothing left. So I, I think Neil Francis is being quite unfair on them. I think Bernard Ackland is closer to the mark. Um, certainly my sense in the ground was that it was a high-quality test match albeit South Africa just found different ways to, to butcher opportunities in the second half. And yeah. Ireland, part, that was partly Ireland's defence and partly their own limitations because if they can't beat you up, they don't seem to be able to find a second way, whereas Ireland are finding different ways to beat teams. Clean Sorry. Just, just, just on, the, on, the, on the brokenness of the play, if you like, and the physicality was, yeah. you know, and it's something Ollie Holt um, refers to today as well in relation to um, Owen Farrell. But um, Shane McGrath makes a good point. He, he said the... 57 minutes the first half was 57 minutes long it's standard these days just shows you though doesn't it like the yeah. level of physicality there was at one point there was was there four four people being treated at one point at yeah. the same time yeah and, and there's length there's lengthy tmo you know that they took a long look at that um colby incident before yeah. coming to a decision but also just these water breaks which nobody needs or wants yeah, and it's all to do with Razi erasmus and, and what happened in the 20, 21 lines tour but it's like they've come up with a terrible solution to a problem yeah. um, that's just like yeah, it's making the game harder harder to watch and then it's bringing in these kind of musical interludes in the stadium that have been such a feature this week um, <laughs> that again just don't work for me personally but it, it was uh, it's still even though it was long and it was I, I found st- I thought was it was good enough to be compelling like it it, it, it the good outweighed the bad, but there's still a lot for Ruby to, to, to fix there. And this is the cosmetic stuff. This isn't going into the deeper stuff about concussion and subconcussive hits and all that stuff. That's you know, you watch that physicality and you're like, God, this, is this safe? You know. Well, that was the question I was going to ask. Given what we know about the game and the um, price that players are paying, and even around the game, we glorified the physicality. It was the talking point all week. When you watch it now, Clean it does. 
I, part I, of you I, failed I to get. Yeah, no, I do. I cringe now. You yeah. know, I do. And, it's not and thrilling. It's more. I do, uh, I, yeah, I do. Like I, more and more, particularly the head stuff and whether it's accidental or not. And even that contentious spirit, not spirit tackle, not a spirit tackle, yellow, red card, whatever it was. You know, you just you do cringe just because of the pure size and speed that these people can travel at. Yeah. That's the thing, like the impact and, and all the statistics or even other. Uh, the statistics are very often it's the tackler that's the one who gets the worst injuries but Ollie Holt raises it as well just in his you know general column today in the mail and he's talking about um, you know after Dylan Hartley's piece last week about yeah. worrying about dementia that he said you know the news that Owen Farrell had been drafted back into the England team that plays Argentina today a fortnight after suffering what was described as a brutal knockout playing for Saracens like that he's saying there's no protocols broken there but you know that doesn't mean the guy you know, is right to be playing at this stage. Um, and he said, how many similar injuries has the England captain suffered? I don't know, but I do know he's storing up trouble for himself. Now, that's his, he, obviously his opinion, but you do worry about, you know, this level. And it's funny, um, the the captain of of, uh, of the Athlone women's team playing today, Laurie, um, he was a former Clare footballer and she's playing the FAI Cup final today. But like I, I was talking to her during the week about her horrendous, you know, concussion that she suffered and how bad she was and incredible. She had to, she went to a physiotherapist and I said, how could you go to a physiotherapist for a concussion? And she was saying it was literally making my eyes move left to right, left to right, you know, spent three or four months, had to sleep in darkened rooms all those things, you know, and it's happening in all sports. But I just think rugby at the moment, you do, you do. I just, feel, I don't, you know, before I used to, you know, there were in years back before we knew all this stuff, you know, you would, you would love to see those physical hits. And now I kind of do wince when I see them. And in some respects, the game at large was, as a spectacle, was lucky because last night wasn't littered with head collisions. It was one, no. one, I was just trying to no. think, it yeah. came off yeah. HIA. It's attritional and we saw yeah. injuries, Shoulders. but they, they weren't the injuries of players having to get HIAs, oh, which yeah. it could easily have been. The three Ireland injuries, I mean, Stuart McCluskey fell awkwardly on his wrist. Yeah. Conor Murray pulled his calf yeah. as he went, or sorry, yeah. his groin, groin as he went think, through yeah. and um, Ty Furlan rolled an ankle. So they're not deeply attritional injuries. So, no. I mean, these players because were I, able to get through the 80 minutes without actually... You know, and there was no collision injuries really, but yeah. the, the toll, it's the toll that has taken on them. I mean, the fact that you're legally allowed to hit Sexton just after he's delivered a pass. And now Sexton brings that on. And what makes him great is the fact that he delays his pass so late just that he commits the, the defender. Yeah. But there, you know, some of those hits that he took were absolutely ferocious, but they were within the laws of the game. And they are, I'm torn on it, you know. I, I can see the danger, but I also relish the spectacle. And that's that's the eternal you know, you're doing a deal with the devil, I suppose, and that's what it is part of what makes the the, the, the test rugby in particular so enthralling. Keenan um, Keenan got a bad hit at one stage and just hopped yeah. up. I mean, their resilience is extraordinary. And they're, they're in incredible well. condition. It's just they yeah. can't they can't protect. You know, they, the one thing they can't protect is their brains, in and that's well, in some that's ways, the concern. I, yeah, in some ways, I thought well, as that was as attritional as it gets yesterday, and yet it was quite positive that there weren't a bunch of head hits or high shots that maybe well. Look, this game's always going to, I think, have a de- an inevitable degree of danger and there's going to have to be informed consent with future generations. But I did watch yesterday and think, well, that couldn't have been more hotly contested, couldn't have been more physical, and yet we managed to avoid head hits. So that was encouraging. Well, I mean, teams are going to... Like, we're, we're, we're just asking teams to, like, learn that you can't... Like, by regulating it, by re- sending people off for it, and Ireland have had 
Peter Armani, Bunnicky, twice sent off for head high shots in yeah. the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, they cost him a game over in Wales a couple of years ago. It cost England the Six Nations game last year. I mean, teams have to learn and adjust. And I think Ireland and the Leinster, like Leinster have a contact skills coach and Sean O'Brien before him, Dennis Neamey did that job and Hugh Hogan. And he has put incredible effort into working with the, tackle, the tackler to make the tackler better at going lower and Josh van der Fleer is an unbelievable example of that Will Connors who's currently out injured um, but he's a brilliant low tackler Ireland's tackle technique is probably world leading and they don't get themselves in those positions as often as other and teams Sexton. and Sexton's they, tackling has changed as it well. has yeah, yeah but they go lower they tend not because they know it's not necessarily about safety it's about discipline and trying not to get sent off because mm. you don't want to cost your team and yeah. look at the summer when New Zealand had had players sent off for high high shots in the in the in the test series that they were really important moments and they were just clumsy um you know going into contact too high that doesn't happen as much with Ireland and in fairness to Africa they are massive men but they're and, and they don't get enough credit for this they're technically excellent in a lot of what they do mm. um and while they bring in an unbelievable level of force and and aggression to it it's Within the, they break, keep it within the bounds of, and that's what makes them so effective and so good. And that's why I think Neil France is quite unfair on them earlier on. You know, Rory King Cleaner says the hype machine will now go into overdrive. Um, <laughs> but Johnny Sexton uh, afterwards and across the papers uh, on all the front pages, he's he's urging caution. We're building well, but we have to win trophies. Triple crown pleasing, but it's about championships, Six Nations, Grand Slams, World Cups. We've done nothing really, so you ca- can't compare this to Ireland teams that have won before. The other thing he did say, though, which jumped out to me, it's on the front page here of the Sunday Independent. He said, we probably didn't play our best rugby, but that's also a very pleasing thing because maybe a couple of years ago, we would have crumbled or not shown the guts that we did there. So that was very pleasing. Yeah, they, 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 big well, admission, isn't it? A couple we, of years well, ago, we wouldn't have shown the guts. Yeah, well, Sexton does that. Sometimes Sexton comes out with stuff and it kind of slides past you. Let's say this is former teammates going. What? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but he's like what I what I think he's right about is that is that just they stuck in, they stuck in, they stayed there, they stayed there, they stayed yeah. there. You know, and they and he made some very brave decisions himself as well. But they didn't, they didn't crumble. I, Roy Keane's piece, I think, is good as well because. Um, he just looks. He just talks about how they changed, how they played as well. So you know, they had to combine a bit of both. They had to bish bash up up the middle, yeah. but they put more width on it, and they were willing to push them around and see. But it was just their ability to withstand what they did in the first half, even that early. You know, just defending their line for so long. Like there was fifty remarkable. tackles in the yeah, first fifteen it minutes. Yeah. Well, not failed. Um, yeah. Stand on their own line. Where South that Africa was, that was went brute force and ignorance. Like they yeah. didn't. They were There was no tip on passes. There was no out the back. It was just carry, carry, carry. Actually, Peter stepped to talk through a little, a little tip on, and that actually opened up Ireland a little bit. They won a penalty. They scored. They made a three all. But that it was, was only the, a penalty. It was only a penalty. <laughs> exactly. That was. That, but that was. It, I thought that's what I. That's where I had the fear was that this was going to take a toll that, that they would take the legs from Ireland but Ireland's fitness paid and, and I, the bench, I, I, the bench, the bench but I think like, you've got to take you know Aki and Henshaw are Ireland's first choice 12s McCluskey's only won six caps across seven years yeah. um, he's playing well you know, he's Ireland's third choice 12 he's playing well he gets whipped off Jimmy with the Brian injury Jimmy O'Brien comes on he's never played for Ireland before he's playing a 13 he's not a 13 Ringrose yeah. is playing a 12 they never missed a beat like that's like Ireland's depth was pretty much exposed on Friday night you know, in that All Blacks A game but they were still the the first team are adaptable and resilient enough to over like other Irish teams would have folded in that you know weren't weren't able to cope with that kind of adversity. You know, and Jameson like, Gibson Park just Gibson Park totally changed yeah, the pace yeah, of the game yeah. too when he came in and 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 you could see 
that South Africa were getting tired at that stage. Yeah, you know, yeah. and they had put so much effort in and hadn't got the return, and they were the ones then who mentally crumbled. I thought it was a really absorbing game. Oh, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, to what extent does this then allay the fear or the accusation that Ireland can't handle big teams? Mostly, largely. Well, they can. They they, can. They've shown now that they've they've they, like the, look. They could play South Africa next Saturday and get beaten up, but. I think any team could be beaten up by South Africa, but they've shown that they can handle them all. They've shown that even their bench, who they're much maligned, Finley Bealham comes on and, and does 40 minutes. And I think mm. his, I think you know, he deserves an awful lot of praise for how he performed. Rob Herring as well. Even Keane Healy came on for the last 10, 15 minutes. And, and like, I mean, this day, he's held together at this stage and he's able to come on in a test match and, and hold his own. Um, I, I, like, uh, France is the next big test of that and England may be at home as well but France are up first in the Six Nations and, and, and France have a, a certain set of skills that again Ireland will have to be clever to come up to, to negate because they have a, another 130 odd kilo lock and 130 odd kilo um, tight head prop and when they get them together and they mo- and, you know, it's quite hard to deal with and Ireland just don't have the, that cattle mm. but they have shown a way they've, they've dealt with the box and that's, that's the ultimate test in my book so they've answered that question, they've shown a way that they can do it. I mean, doing it again is hard, but they, they can draw on this now. And, and I think the fear that we had is, is lessened by that, that gives, okay. this can give them comfort. It's not, the pro- I think the reason the hype train won't get over, I think I said this to you the other day, um, the reason the hype train won't get, go overboard is because of the draw and the fact that not only did they play South Africa in the pool, they played a winner, the, well, either the winners or the losers of, of that opening game in next year's World Cup, New Zealand and France. And yeah. that is a 50-50 game. Even if Ireland get everything right on that day, they might not win because they're playing against two of the best teams in the world. France are probably, I think the world rankings probably should be flipped. I think France are the best team in the world right now. Ireland are probably a close second. Yeah. Um, I, I thought what Trimble and, and Rob Carney were saying to you yesterday was interesting as well in relation to the previous World Cup, the one that everything went, went so badly wrong on, which was that they basically were admitting the boys thought we had the work done yeah, and yeah. that Sad thing still. about these guys just constantly are looking for ways to get better, you know, and that's always what you want. Yeah. And yeah, I do, I do sense that if you take Ireland, South Africa, France, England, certainly New Zealand, who else be in the mix? Australia. Yeah. I think there's a fair chance only Ireland if all of those teams were given the choice, would want the World Cup on this month as opposed to next year. I think every France. single other team. I think yeah. France would even look at it and say, you know what? Our age profile, another year, we're going to be better again. South Africa, better again. New Zealand, 100% better again. South Africa, they've blooded a lot of players this year. They'll be in great shape next year. England, desperate for a year to sort themselves out. New Zealand, the same. I think we're the only team. Sexton, a year older. Yeah. I think we're the only team, if you said, do you want the World Cup on now or in a year? Absolutely, we're the yeah. only team that say now. Yeah, that's the, you're that, right. That doesn't mean we're peaking. It doesn't mean we're, we're sitting still and we're burying our head in the sands. It's just circumstances. Age. It is. The age profile section is the big one. Yeah. The rest of the team, the, the age worry. profile is pretty much perfect. I mean, Keane Healy, I think ideally they'd have a younger loose head prop who's, who's chomping at his heels and, and, and they don't. I mean, Jeremy Lockman maybe, but we're, that's still, he needs a season of really good work for Munster. And that... That it, now he'll be a year older as well, and, and we'll have a lot more kind of hits under the on the shoulders and, and all of that as well. So um, yeah, you're probably right. I think France, like the one thing you worry about, with, well, not that I worry about France very much, but like the one thing I think France will worry about is that they'll find a way to combust, which again is a pretty a natural stereotype more than anything so else. So will we? But with Galtier, <laughs> oh, I mean, sorry, that's it's almost inevitable. <laughs> that's why we're not getting that's carried away. We don't want to get burned by the, the by the past, you know. Yeah. But Galtier is a is an interesting figure 
their their union is being like their key figures in their union are being investigated by the police and they're going to you know that there are things get going messy. on in French rugby yeah. that could get messy in the next year. I think they take it now as well. I mean the way they won against Australia last night with that Pinot try, mm. um, okay, the awesome. they have going on. I think they take it as well. Okay, like, and, um, and the one thing is that's probably quite an old box team as well, relatively speaking. They're yeah. not. They you know there, there wasn't anybody particularly. You know, there's an enemy particularly young in that team last night. That's the one thing I think about them. I thought they tired a lot in that game. And yeah. I just thought I was surprised at how they see. I know they got the late tries and that, but I just was surprised at how they seem to run out of steam. They have the players, if they want to. And I don't know if Erasmus and Nina Barr will do it. They have the, 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 the well of players that they could completely revitalise yeah. their team in 12 months. And I, I don't think they're going to do it. They seem to be leaning into that team of 2019. Yeah. Mm, and maybe that's mm, a big mistake. Mm. Whereas Eddie Jones has tried to... I don't know what he's trying to do really, but he's completely flipped it. They're uh, the great unknown England, aren't they? Yeah, they so. are. They could, you know, and the thing, the great point that he makes, and I think that most people make about the World Cup, is that while Ireland model is designed to be able to peak for these international windows, everyone peaks for a World Cup. Everyone has a pre-season, and that's where the playing field is level. So yes. all of these things negate getting overly excited right now. But I think what you have to do is. That was a great game yesterday, mm. and a, a great occasion. We've just been start. We've had two years start with great occasions, and I think people are entitled to enjoy it. And I think the achievement of beating the world champions in that way is, is worthy of, of of being credited. Absolutely, it, it can't be diminished. You no, know. agreed. And Joe, just on yes. just when we're talking about rugby, I just thought that I, I quite liked Rick Broadbent's piece with yeah, with really Michael Checker today, and um, people might like to have a look at that in the Sunday Times. Just it's great. I'll yeah. come to that actually um, before we're done for sure because Michael Cech has had the week of weeks. But that's Ireland and South Africa. Uh, let's turn to Father Ted's Golden Cleric Award speech, <laughs> a.k.a. Martin O'Neill's book. <laughs> this is just going to be a score settling exercise, oh. I suspect. Um, so front page, O'Neill hits back at critic Keith Andrews. So his new book is out, Martin O'Neill, Extract Sunday Times, Days Like This. Uh, so he takes aim at... Keith Andrews and you suspect it was noted by both Roy Keane and Martin O'Neill that Keith Andrews was critical of them as managers at times so he says Stephen's lieutenant finds himself in a hotter seat in the dugout than the one he occupied in a TV studio when he was excoriating an excoriating critic of mine he's finding out that winning football matches is much more difficult to execute on the field of play than fidgeting about with a remote control <laughs> button such pontification in the studio hasn't so far achieved the desired effect on the playing field. Luckily, he's getting plenty of opportunities to put things right. Said the man who's not, not unknown. I was given any opportunities. Said the man. I was just going to say the man who's not unknown to be in the studios a lot himself. Yeah. Yeah. Funny, I read the. Uh, I was using the tablet edition and I, I read the extract that was in the English edition first, which is about the winning the European Cup in Nottingham Forest. And it's quite good. It's quite interesting. McClough and stuff. I was like, oh, you know, O'Neill, you know, it's, it's kind of. He's got such an interesting story. It's a pity his Ireland days were, you know, ended in such an embittered way, and he became less and less impressive as it went on. And then I read the Irish stuff, and I said, "God, well, totally there's a bit where he said after know, he beat Germany, totally different excerpts. They, they are, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're ones of like nostalgia-filled, you know, like really nice story about, you know, the first time they won the European Cup, he throws his medal on the table, and because he was a sub, and they wanted to get, and they, the, the, the people can read it, and then he comes back two years later or a year later and wins it, and it means so much more to him. And Clough told me the great game and how much that meant to him, and it's it's genuinely it's good, and <laughs> like the fact that he he wanted a, mo a couple of months off after to beat Germany to gloat." I mean, come on, like you're, you've achieved so much in the game and you're trying to score settle with journalists and pundits. Um, he seems so wrapped up in that stuff. 
it's quite it's quite remarkable. It's shocking, really, yeah. isn't it? It's well, quite surprising. The more I spend time around coaches and players, the more I, I understand that the the lie that they don't read the media, yeah. um, <laughs> they care true. deeply about what everyone says about them. Well, there's um, a telling line that starts. This is the extract where he talks about Ireland. Six months after my departure from Sunderland, my phone rings. It's Dermot Desmond. Stop your moaning and come manage the Republic of Ireland. I think moaning might be the key word in that. Uh, Sentence, but I don't like moping, moping, moping. Sorry, sorry moping. Sorry. Well, <laughs> tomato, tomato. <laughs> exactly. So I mean, it's fine. It's it's not especially enlightening. It's it's fairly perfunctory. I meet Delaney. I tell him about Roy Keane. I race over to stop him falling from his chair. Uh, he goes on to talk about at the end of the meeting, we travel over to see Dennis O'Brien, whose finance Trabatoni's salary will continue to oversee the new manager's wages. Unlike Jack Charlton's star-studded group, we do not have many players at the top echelons of the game. Robbie Keane coming to the end, Seamus Coleman an exception. And then it just goes into match report, a tentative yeah, start very, against it's Georgia. It's very play-by-play. Oh. McGeady pounces on a through ball from James McCarthy. We are in the lead within a minute of defensive mix-up. Georgia equalised. Just then, draw looks likely. McGeady scores wonder goal to secure three points. In our next game, Keane's hat-trick, winning against Gibraltar yeah, no on it goes there's no, there's no insight and he talks about I pushed John O'Shea forward against Germany um, and he scores the goal and then he says apparently a draw hasn't satisfied every critic viewers back in Ireland get in touch with RTE to complain its coverage of the game tonight has been excessively negative I mean tune in for the previous 20 years man. <laughs> I think viewers on RTE we're pretty accustomed to some art. I don't, I don't think they were like, well, this is beyond the pale now. I must ring RTE. I'd be amazed if they did. And then he goes on to say, the following morning, I'm somewhat taken aback to hear that. And he doesn't name, I don't like, name the Pat person. Holland. Yeah, just name him. Oh yeah, the ex-manager in the league of Ireland. The ex-manager in the league of Ireland seems to be said with yeah. a bit of vitriol as well. Yeah, it is. It's definitely, it's laced with something <laughs> there. Right? Yeah. yeah, so this Sorry, person I don't deem worthy of naming. The following morning, I am somewhat taken aback to hear that an ex-manager in the League of Ireland has claimed in a newspaper column that the player players got me out of jail with their last minute equaliser this individual is also a football agent in fact he's actually the agent for one of our players Shane Long I wonder if Cruz's, Cruz's agent uh, Tony Cruz is writing in a newspaper criticising Joachim Lowen and you're, and you're wondering I wonder is Joachim Lowen reading all these newspaper articles and taking such offence oh he probably well? is I'm sure I'm sure, I'm sure he is if, <laughs> if you, I don't know I just, I, if I just, you bought it just for some insights into you know or as a taster you know normally tasters in the books are, are yeah. well, but I have to say it's nothing very, in this it's very it's very, very old school football autobiography isn't very it? it's, pedestrian it, yeah, it's very my pedestrian. life in football stuff it's no there's no insight and he's just settling scores and even, not even like he says you know, Roy, you know Roy gave some tactical insight that I, that I thought was interesting well what was it tell us what it was like what was Roy doing during all these weeks was, like why exactly. did, how did you beat these teams like well, how did you beat Germany it's just oh, we beat Germany and then he threw, and that Shane, was, he threw John O'Shea forward that was for the, that was the away game wasn't oh, it yeah no, so, but sorry, like, that's, that's all, all it is like, yeah. but, I mean, I, I, Martin O'Neill I think is a more interesting figure than this this lets on and maybe yeah. he obviously your ghost between him and his ghost he, the ghost can only get get what the player, the man is or the, the, the subject is willing to give so he obviously wasn't willing to go beyond the perfunctory and he just he's out to score settle scores but he even makes the bloody Tired old point about how Roy, Robbie Keane was getting a bit on and we didn't have the players. Mm. Like, stuff we've heard, stuff Irish supporters have heard for years and years. Yeah. Because that's what he said when he was here anyway. Like you can say what you like with Stephen Kenny, you'll never hear that line from him. You know, well, like the he, other thing is, it's just like, as I said, the extracts in the papers are usually the juicy the best, bits. And yeah. if this is the juiciest bit, or I don't know what else is going to be in the book, but it doesn't. it's not very attention grabbing on the basis of this. And just a lot of... Just a lot of, I just detect a lot of ego in it. You know, um, I was laughing. <laughs> he talks about um, 
talks about playing Scotland and Sean Maloney to whom I gave a debut at Celtic over a decade ago and whom I took to Villa Park it's like <laughs> it's just yeah. it's constant thing you know um, uh, you know criticism of the Irish media is heavy and I need to remind myself that we have lost only once in six competitive matches you know there's just that kind of constant score self justification and yeah, just yeah you just want a bit like I mean obviously there's the the second campaign is a little less successful and, and maybe the well, maybe, uh, maybe there'll be more in that but I, I wouldn't be holding my breath based but on what we're seeing here it's just an, and then we lost and then we took off all our midfielders against Denmark <laughs> and that didn't go so well but you know what though it was actually for all Stephen Kenny's critics and they are out there for sure and there are aspects which haven't been good it was like re-immersing yourself in like a bad relationship and I just had flashbacks to him and Tony O'Donoghue and just that ugh yeah. Yeah. which is just unbecoming of a representative of the Irish team and like he's had such a great career and so admirable in so many ways and an intelligent man but there was that that negativity and that sense of ego that was very unappealing and it's coming through in, and uh, I wonder I, I, like, I don't know who goes to the book and I don't know um, I presume it's probably being pitched at Celtic fans Leicester sure. fans and um, Nottingham Forest fans rather than the Irish market so maybe this is not the important chapter in it maybe the, the glory days of Celtic is where he leans in and he kind of tells everyone how great he was in that time and what he achieved at that time was um, sensational and the game I think had passed him by by the time he got the Ireland job and what qualifying for France and what happened over there is, is was a great achievement and a great moment in Irish sport that Robbie Brady goal was I watched it in Port Elizabeth and it was the first time I connected with the Irish team yeah, in a long time. Yeah. It was a great moment. Now it was fleeting and the players that he had brought through never really kicked on and now we're, you know, we're having to rebuild the entire team after it. But I wonder if whoever's written the book just wasn't that interested in Ireland. They didn't know what questions to ask or, or didn't care enough to ask the questions. I mean, are we going to get the, the ins and outs of why Declan Rice ended up um, going the other way? Are we going to get the full behind the scenes story of the, the Roy Keane, the Stephen Ward, his version of the Stephen Ward voice uh, voice note. I mean, that's the stuff that you'd like to know. But I mean, yeah, as I say earlier, I wouldn't be holding my breath. I think we're going to get more stories about how great he was at Celtic. And, and look, that's it's, it's his book, I suppose. It's his yeah. prerogative. But yeah, he doesn't come away from that extract looking particularly great. Or like that he enjoyed it or had a great fondness for the, the time in charge. Uh, so Qatar is looming and it's across the papers in various guises. For instance, I mean, and, and in all sorts of ways. So back page of the Sunday Times, for instance, and we'll play the clip here because I think it's it's done the rounds, but on the off chance you haven't seen it. So uh, David Walsh, Neville is made to squirm after tough question about punditry working in Qatar. So David Walsh here in the back page of Sunday Times says, it's a rare thing to sit in front of the TV and see Gary Neville and feel sympathy and just talks about how accomplished Neville is, but he presented Have I Got News For You this week and I, I, I haven't seen the full episode, but the clip which has really gone viral is Ian Hislop in particular holding Neville to account over the fact that he is uh, working for B in sports and uh, Neville gives the justification as you'll hear that he, he generally gives and that usually does the trick you know if he's asked about this in most instances and he, and he gives the explanation that you're about to hear that generally is the end of the discussion but Ian Hislop uh, disagreed that there were only two options have a listen but you know David Beckham don't you yeah yeah he's going isn't he yeah, yeah. how much has he been paid I don't know. You do know. <laughs> More than me. Yeah. Ian, is it coming home? What, your reputation? <laughs> um, the others have been very gentle with you, Gary, but I thanks, mean... Thanks, Ian. The elephant in the room is still there. I mean, you're, you're commentating there, aren't you? Yeah, I'm commentating there. What's the defence? Football term. We're commentating there. <laughs> well... 
You've got a choice, I think, haven't you? What, going or not going? Well, <laughs> my view always has been that you either highlight the issues and challenges in these countries and speak about them, or you basically don't say anything, you stay back home and don't go. And I've always said we should challenge them. There's another option, you stay at home and highlight the abuses. You don't have to go and take the Qataris' money. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to be tartan, but, I mean, it's just... It's not a very good defence. And how, how, how is someone like Robbie or the Black Eyed Peas supposed to highlight it? Are they going to make a speech on the stage? Of course they're not. You can, you can highlight it. What, during a match? Well, highlight and it during the commentary. It's uh, the kick-off here in this appalling country's <laughs> human rights record. And honestly, I think, oh, someone's kicking a ball. But honestly, the, the amount of immigrant workers who've died, it's a shocker. Oh, it's a goal! <laughs> And as David Walsh says, suddenly you realise that far from the Sky Sports studio, Neville was in a very uncomfortable place. Hislop wasn't buying what Red Nev was selling. Neville would not have accepted the be-in sport role unless he was being well rewarded. Challenged by, have I got news for you's panellists, he didn't have much of an answer. I felt sorry for him. And that was a first. No, I didn't feel sorry for him at all because the, the reason he's doing, have I got news for you, is... Also, presumably, because he was very well paid for it. Mm. And you either go into those things prepared or you don't. You know, and it just shows you, like, they've got very sharp, actually, on Have I Got News For You recently. I don't know, maybe it's a political situation in England. They, they were a bit stale, I thought, for a few years. But now they've got very sharp again. And you don't go on there without thinking that you're going to have to answer some hard questions. And particularly if you're a presenter. So I just, just thought... You know, wrong call, Neville, and, and uh, you know. I think uh, perhaps his stock answer is you've two options. You <laughs> has worked in the past. He felt, well, it's th- not that, work that in does a room the job. Brains like that. No, they, I mean, they saw straight through. Like, yeah. you, your logic is just... I actually watched a clip from the sky. Yeah. Yeah. Randomly watched a clip on, on Twitter this morning of Ian Hislop being interviewed by um, a London Times podcast, and he said hypocrisy, hypocrisy is what drives him. So he he lives, but mm-hmm. he's doing hip, private eye. You know, he edits, edits private eye. What he looks for is hypocrisy. And I mean, it's the ultimate like Neville's political stances that he's taken over the years. His his vis- visceral condemnation of the Super League is so jarring when you see him walking around Doha with David Beckham for the overlap, and they you know they don't go near any of the big issues. Yeah. You know. Um, like Beckham's, like Beckham's trying to do to have it both ways, and, and Neville's doing it to a lesser extent. I don't think he's getting the same kind of money as Beckham is, as, as he almost points out himself. But um, <laughs> like Beckham's also trying to do, you know, isn't there a Disney Plus doc- documentary that's just come yes. out of, of Beckham trying to, you know, raise up a, a, a third division team in the South London leagues at under thirteen level, where and he used he's to play. Yeah, where he used to play, like and to it's, it's all it's massage. That's trying to he's trying to get, get the money on one hand managed. and also massage yeah. their Frank about it, he is hard to stomach right now, David. Beckham. <laughs> he really is. Like how much money? Does a man need? Yeah, you know, exactly. and he really well, wants money. begets money. Like the, the, there is no that you know that <laughs> it's like yeah. What, what the LP Finn line? You know, you, you try sometime. You know, you got to if you want to run three houses in different parts of the world, you got to you got to keep the the income coming in. Look, Neville. You know, Neville left himself wide open. I mean, he made a choice to go on a yeah. nice view. That was like how he didn't he see this that. coming. You know what yeah, I mean? that's my point. And that stock answer is so weak. It's so lily Like, is he really going to go and be in sport and criticise the regime? He's now under a fair degree of pressure to deliver some of that criticism on being sports, I would say. Well, particularly, yeah. Now this thing's blown up. He has. Yeah. It really has blown up. I guess. I it's pro- going to be properly handled. viral. Because I, I think, um, you know, certain things stick with people. Mm. Like... You see Richard Keyes tweet anything and look at the replies. There are one or two stock things that just stick and forever follow him around. I wouldn't be, two, three, four years time, Gary Neville could have been thrown at him 
in those replies as one of these things that just tarnishes what you'd have to say is an extraordinary reputation mm. as like one of the great voices in punditry and uh, has spoken brilliantly on lots of and it's difficult clearly intelligent. subjects. Clearly intelligent. And is clearly able to tackle issues beyond football and is clearly able to interrogate them in his own mind. But you wonder with someone like Gary Neville is how much is he challenged by other people in his life or in Sky and how powerful is he in there? He's obviously, he's, he is a meal ticket in the Sky. You know, he, his yeah. podcast is successful. He's a great broadcaster. He's made himself into a great pundit. But, you know, is he too powerful in there that no one would say to him? I don't think it's a good it's idea. Uh, I would say not at all. And based on him, he gave his answer with such confidence. Yeah. Like he almost was like, oh, well, actually, I've always thought, you know, as in you've got this option or that option. There was a real sense of this is the correct this answer. Is, this yeah. is and he didn't the, my, my pat answer. Exactly. And it kind of finished yeah. with like nervous giggle of, oh, there is a third option. Yeah. These, and these people aren't just going to move <laughs> well, on to the next just, topic. Well, it's not this. Yeah, because you see, you know, as as much as we talk about sport being political, uh, so much of sports broadcasting, particularly TV broadcasting, is very light on this end and people aren't challenged on this yeah. kind of stuff. But this was, in my opinion, like whoever advised him to take that job and do it, um, he just didn't make a good judgment on it. And that's where you just got to be smart enough. And as you say, sometimes you need more no men or no women in your corner. Yeah, it's going to be like this whole, it's only two weeks away. I can't believe it. It's only two weeks away. I've, I've, I've ignored the build up. I, I, I mean, I love World Cups. There's I, been I, none. There's been none. Well, there, I've seen the articles. I just haven't, really? I haven't clicked on them or, or yeah, opened them. I've no. I, the only ones I've read are about Qatar and how awful it is. Um, personally, that's. I mean, I'm pretty consumed by rugby at the moment, but um, it's. The, I think there's four Irish writers going over. Like they're all. I know what they're all like. Basically, reading literature. You know, UNHCR reports. You know, they're not reading mm. team previews and mm. match. But you know, they're they're delving into human rights issues because they are going. To, they are all know that there is a balance to be struck between writing about football and reporting what's gone on over there over the last couple of years about you know highlighting LGBTQ issues and I mean Ollie Holt's got is it Ollie Holt he has yeah. a, the Holt, open letter Tommy, but I mean, Tommy has a it was a great well, story in the London Times during the week where th about the, the, the fans being paid to oh. spy on fellow oh. plans, uh, fans and the, a member of the England band is, is one of these fans who's is basically a paid member of of the Qatari government who's there to promote Qatar and engage on social media so if anyone criticises it he's been paid to go on and and, and you go, oh, no, it's actually a great spot. And like this kind of dystopian yeah. stuff is, is just horrific. You know, it's, it, it, the World Cup shouldn't be there. We all know it shouldn't be there. We all still can't believe, I think, that it's going, it's going to happen in November, December in a, in a country that just is too small to have it, for, that has it for all the wrong reasons. Um, and yet here we are, and it's presenting an incredible challenge for, for everyone. I mean, Tommy, everyone who covers it. Tommy Conlon's piece uh, details the upcoming documentary yeah. on Netflix. Netflix yeah. And part of that is, uh, well, initially, um, a woman who worked with the Qatari Bids team has turned whistleblower and uh, talked about the uh, corruption in securing the bid. In a perverse way, Kleena, I was reading that and I was thinking... I'm not even that upset about the corruption and winning the bid. That's like I, 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 <laughs> I expect it. I, I, I'm allowing for that. Yes. That's just the real world. It's yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm less scandalised by that as opposed to uh, the wrongs of uh, how else did the, the migrant workers? How else did the petrol state end up at the World Cup? I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously you have to expose it, but that's not know. the yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, and the, it's out on it's out on Wednesday that new that yeah. new Netflix one. So that will gather pace. And yeah, then and there's been books as well about FIFA corruption. So we've we've read the stuff before. But I think I think the letter that the organizer sent out this week was the one that really made people. And that admission, as Rory was saying, that they have.
paid fans from several countries to come over and do positive social media. I mean, seriously. And there's fans in a section of the stadium who the camera will go on at some point yeah. during, the, during a half and they will all have to stand up and sing a song. Right. That is, and I think it's all the old, it says, um, where is it? As for the songs that England fans group have been requested to sing, I am curious to know whether the desired repertoire includes our recent favourites such as Southgate Out, the special No Surrender version of our national anthem, and the old staple Ten German Bombers, <laughs> which uh, I presume is not on the on the, the list of songs. But you know, it's just so clinical yeah. and cynical, and it leaves you so cold. And I think, like, if Messi goes and wins the World Cup with Argentina, and there are great games, I think we'll all watch. But we all know what we're watching as well. And, and, and it's, I, I think an hour after the final, we'll all just look back and I think, I think, awful. Yeah. Uh, but, the but the concept Ali, of the Ollie Hall piece, by the way, it's yeah, for people who haven't read, read the piece clearly, it's an open letter because FIFA this week wrote to the 32 participating nations and asked them, please, let's focus on the football. <laughs> we beg you, uh, they said, basically. And so Ollie Hall says, dear president and secretary general, and he just eviscerates them in a million different ways. It has, just to give you a sense of the tone, uh, I applaud you most sincerely for writing a letter to try to neuter opposition rather than cutting your critics up with a bone saw, a tactic which, as you know, has found favour with one of your club owners in the Premier League. Which, you know, that's not even World Cup related, but it's that kind of a tone all the way through. He talks about how uh, you asked that football not be dragged into every ideological or political battle that exists, but it was FIFA who dragged football into this battle and it was FIFA who dragged the rest of us into it as well. And he says, telling journalists to stay at home if they do not agree with the the tournament being staged in Qatar is just another strand of the growing attempt to silence reporting on issues some people would rather were ignored. Uh, While you're sitting at your keyboards, by the way, Maybe you should uh, both write a letter to whoever it is is paying that supporters group, including 40 fans from England, to attend the tournament with instructions to deliver positive messages about the experience, sing certain songs uh, when requested and report critical social media posts. Uh, So I I just you know, he makes a point as well that that letter was just such a so PR misstep because it's done the very opposite of what it was intended. What did they think that letter was going to do? Well, Can you imagine the meeting though? Let's write them a letter to tell them just to concentrate on the football. Won't get out. Great idea. Yeah. Won't get out. Who? Yeah. Sure, no one leaked that. But but it but, yeah, te- but doesn't it tell you something about the state of mind of those people who are in deluded. control of that? Yeah. yeah. Yes, but also that they're Just in that touch. position of control that they can tell people what to think and mm. feel. Mm. That's basically what they're trying to do. And did they think and the Australian players would read the letter and say, "Oh, let's not do the video. Let's retract the video." <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be very interested to see because it's such a it's such a high point in your career, and you may only get to one World Cup. So you, sure. and you, I'm sure all of the players going are, are pretty much foc- are, are focused on trying to do as, be- as well as they can. But will any player step outside the lines, and what will happen to them if they do? Like, do FIFA, FIFA are in such a bind. If someone, you know, I don't know, takes the knee or wears an armband or takes off his jersey and and you know has a has a message, a, a pro gay message or a a pro worker message or even a end, you know stop oil message, because you know one thing doesn't get highlighted is you know. Oil rich states are like you know basically killing the planet as well, you know, as, as well as all the other horrible things that they do. Um, what do FIFA do? Do they ban that player for the next game? Do they issue him a massive fine? Or you know, like everything is go- it's going to look so the optics across the board are so bad as uh, from a starting point, and there will be storylines like that across across the whole tournament. And Rob Rob, uh, Bick, Rob Draper has a piece in the just a small piece as well saying that the England and nine other European nations that are wearing the one love armbands that 
they're expected to make some sort of a reply this week to Infantina's letter, but we don't know what that'll be. Um, but yeah, look, we're all conflicted. Let's face it. You, you, you're looking at it going, should I be watching it? You know, uh, how are we going to respond to it? Or as Ali Holt says about Newcastle, or do, you know, things start suddenly good games and suddenly everybody forgets about it. You know, mm. it's it's the big quandary in sport at the moment, which is a lot of the money that's coming into sport is coming from places that ne- some of them, well, not all, not all, but some money coming into sport is from places where, you know, do not have particularly desirable regimes. And there's there's a piece in the, some of these saw this one, the piece of the Irish Mail on Sunday about Fulham um, dropping a sponsor, a company, uh, uh, Titan Capital Markets, and they dramatically have dropped them after the sports mail found the firm guaranteed huge prob- improbable financial reports. But they, 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 they actually did a study of this company that, that were sponsoring Fulham and discovered that their, their, their video, which has all these people videoed who are, you know, uh, data engineer, data analysts, chief technology officers, they're all actors and models. They don't exist. Mm. There's been a surprising yeah. amount of very odd Premier League sponsorship deals yeah. with rogue companies almost. You know, there's a Wild West aspect to what's going yeah, on. Jossamer have done a couple of really interesting yeah. lengthy pieces, yeah. very dense pieces um, about it. And yeah, a lot of money washing around the, the that world, not yeah. the, not on uh, accusing any one football club of being no, money launderers, sure. but there is money coming into that world. I mean, I think some of the suggestion is that some of the big um, state-owned clubs are basically finding new ways of creating sponsors to get money and to get around financial fair play. But there does seem to be also just dark money going into the Premier League from all sorts of quarters, and yeah. it's uh, it's yeah, it's very bizarre. Like uh, it's good to see it exposed, and it's good to see it being questioned. But it is it is interesting. Isn't you it? look at the sponsors at games, and I know it's a global sport now. But like I don't recognise. I mean, you used to be you know Draper Tools and, <laughs> and people people like that, and Southampton Jersey, and it's just you know. No one, no one knows half the brands that are there. You yeah, know. you have to Google it. You have to go and say, who are they? Yeah, yeah and like, I know money is at a point now where companies just need, like, money, you're losing money if you're sitting on it, so you just basically have to get your money into, like, sponsoring, sponsorship is a good way of getting your money out there for, for legitimate companies who want to want to do that, and, and that's one of the reasons they do it. But there's some brands, you're just like, I don't know what their, yeah. what their thought process is behind this. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. There is a great interview. You both picked it out with Andrei Shevchenko with David Walsh, page 16, 17 of The Sunday Times. And I mean, it starts off, uh, Andrei Shevchenko has a very nice life for himself. Uh, Footballing legend, Ballon d'Or winner, 2004. So they meet at Wentworth Golf Club, which is uh, as prestigious as golf clubs get in London. Uh, near in uh, West London, where Shevchenko now lives, beautiful part of the world. Uh, near the entrance, he bumps into Harry Kane. I don't know about you, I don't bump into Harry Kane at my <laughs> golf course. Uh, well done last night, he says, a Spurs' last minute win. You don't want to see how bad we were in the first half, Kane uh, whispers back. And he notes, uh, Dave Walsh notes, after Gary Lineker, Shevchenko became the second professional footballer to be accepted as a member of the nearby Sunningdale uh, Golf Club. So... He lives in London and he's lived in London for 16 years, Shevchenko. He's married to an American. He speaks Italian, four children. Life is very good. And of course, uh, then the war in Ukraine happens. And he reflects on his childhood uh, briefly because I guess he was of an age where things were changing rapidly. He was at a football tournament in Moscow as a 14 year old in 1991. When we left Moscow, we were part of the USSR. When we arrived home in Kiev, we were part of the Ukraine. Everything changed so quickly. When we arrived at the 
train station, Ukrainian flags were everywhere, people celebrating. At the time, I didn't really understand that you're 14 years old. But between Moscow and Kiev, we always uh, knew there was a difference. And he says we'd been living in a false reality of unity. And now there was something I'd never known, freedom. And he remembered shortly after Ukraine independence, an under 16 game against Holland, 30,000 fans turned up. Uh, that evening, everything clicked. Playing for Ukraine felt more important than anything else. And uh, he remembers the Ukraine-Russia qualifiers uh, for the European Championships in 2000 for Euro 2000. Ukraine won 3-2 in Kiev. They drew one all at uh, the Luzhniki Stadium in Moscow. Both games huge because of the rivalry. When we went to Moscow, it was considered unsafe for us to be in a hotel. We slept at the Ukrainian embassy. I suppose the harrowing uh, aspect, Kleena, is when he talks about... Well, his mother and uh, his sister and they didn't want to leave at first and they slept in corridors in their apartments. So they had two walls between them and the point where the rocket might strike uh, close by were always uh, ready packed suitcases. His mother's health deteriorated rapidly and in the end they just said you have to get out. And so they managed to get out and get to um, Italy. But he has been uh, as haunted and distraught as I suppose any Ukrainian uh, looking yeah, on, he's visited five times. Is really, there's a really good photo of him. Yeah. I just think the photo, his face is really looks really arid. And he's visited the country five he, times. Well, not only that, but he's actually gone back and he's working. He he, he went back and he met Zelensky, and then yeah. he's working for this Unite Twenty Four, which is a fundraising platform to rebuild Ukraine. And now, equality. Well, we're talking about this is you know we're talking about you know sports journalism not asking hard questions. Somebody of David Walsh's quality, you expect him to ask the hard question and he does. And he may have done it very late in the interview as we often try and do. But he does the end of it finishes with him. He does ask him about his relationship with Abramovich. Mm. And he says during his Chelsea years, yeah, 2006 or nine, he was sometimes seen in Roman Abramovich's box. They were friends. I ask if he's had recent contact with the club's former owner. I haven't spoken with them since the war has started, but I've been reading. He's been doing a lot for the peace efforts. Um, which is, you know, always has been there in the background and nobody knows exactly what that situation is. My position is clear. I ask myself, what are you going to do? I decide I'm going to stand up for my country. I'm going to help my country because that is the right thing to do. This is our land. This is our future. I just think it, it, like I, I'm amazed at the lack of coverage and sport about Ukrainians. You know, we had European championships in athletics during the summer, Ukrainians winning medals. And actually there was very little coverage of how are they doing it? Um, the, the Dublin City Marathon last week, Roy ran it. Um, there was a lovely scene afterwards. I, went, I, went, I was inside in the mix zone and there was a Ukrainian run, run, running it who actually hadn't has won it twice before, a veteran. And uh, she was having a picture taken with Courtney Maguire, the young uh, Tom Elgar who just won it uh, with the Ukrainian flag. And she actually said to me, I wasn't fit. The Ukrainian woman said, I wasn't fit coming here. I ran it for peace. And we're not, I don't think we're not talking to people enough or asking people, uh, Ukrainian athletes enough about how, how do you keep doing this? And, and what are your circumstances? And, you know, it, it's become very easy to forget that that war is continuing. And I think that sport is one place that you can highlight it. Yeah. I interviewed a, a woman in, um, in City West recently, whose daughter is a young 14 uh, year old who's who's literally going across town to play volleyball because when she when they arrived as refugees, they were based in at Dublin Airport in a hotel there and then they got moved overnight. And this kid is a really good volleyball player and played at home. But her mother said uh, she was looking at my hair and we were laughing before we started chatting. And uh, and uh, I said, yours is nice as well. And she and she had a, a lovely woman who was helping them in Ireland with her. And she said her hair had turned grey. Mm. She had to put dye in it. 
it. She said, my hair has turned grey since the war. It's very She's a young woman. Very striking that the 2000 game, like, I mean, we're, I'm, yeah. most of us, I think, we're oblivious of the tension. I think, you know, we kind of follow these things from afar. The Berlin Wall comes down, you know, these countries become independent and we sometimes play football against them. But the fact that they, they, they had to go to stay in the embassy 20, 22 years before yeah. the outbreak of war, the tensions were that high. And just when we were talking about Qatar earlier, I, my mind went back to four years ago when, you know, basically FIFA and the world legitimised Putin's regime by having a World Cup in, in, in Putin's Russia. And you know, Conor McGregor was in his corporate box with him before the game and Infantino was you know, glad handing around and, and like a lot of my colleagues who were there had a great time and, and we're like, gee, Russia, Russia's not so bad, you know, because they put on a good show for the four or five weeks that it was on and it's that sports washing of a difference. Maybe, sorry, it's, it's, it's a different version of sports washing or maybe it's the same thing. It's, it's uh, but, you know, it's four years ago, Russia was the centre of the universe for a very different reason and, and Funny, Shevchenko says this war didn't start eight yes. months ago. Crimea. It started with the invasion of Crimea eight years ago. Yeah. If you let the bully take some piece of what he wants, he's going to come back for more. That was the big mistake everybody made. We let the bully take what he wanted. I um, I often wonder, you know, having not lived through, for instance, World War Two, like, say here, where we weren't directly involved, was everybody consumed with this at every moment? And now increasingly I feel having seen the way we're so not consumed with yeah. the war in Ukraine yeah. they, no, they weren't well, no, which we were my, at the start I talked to my granny me. about it my granny um, passed away this year but she she lived through the war and she was actually in England at the outbreak of war and her mother went and got the three kids and brought them home they'd been sent over for a better life and she went and got them and brought them home and, and she said all we, all they thought about was food because the not all but the, the war was so far away but yeah. the food shortages were real so I think that's where people were, were consumed but I, I read I read a book about German spies I can't remember the guy's name who wrote it but German spies in Ireland during the war and like our life was going on relatively nor- normally I think there was you know at government level there was concerns and there was you know lots of things going on like you know you would have people landing in the dark of night but really I think normal life went on as, as relatively normal, although they didn't have access to the same level of food that they would Shevchenko have had. Shevchenko's yeah. interesting though, Joe, because, yeah. and, and it's indicative really of the complications of this thing, because he says both of his grandparents fought for Russia yeah. in the Second World War. Yeah, yeah, and uh, even, it's, it's, the, it's the nuances of it that are so difficult for people, because I was really struck when I was interviewing that woman and her daughter. The daughter settled in this particular volleyball club in Santry, which is a really, really successful volleyball club in Ireland. Um, because the assistant coach is Russian and speaks Russian yeah. and she speaks Russian in Ukraine. And there's a connection, a human connection, and it's nothing to do with politics or war. But yeah. it is fascinating to see. You know, I just feel we've, you know, I feel we're all just getting on with our lives now. And I, I am Maybe. I am amazed at how, as I said, Ukrainian athletes in lots of sports. Um, and, and that woman actually, uh, the PR um, information had been that she was living in Austria the woman who came over for the Dublin Marathon but actually she told me she was living in Kajistan and has been living in Kajistan since the war yeah. and that's where she's been training and she hasn't been home since But it's it's amazing how it's just completely fallen off the news agenda yeah. in daily life I'm not talking about it yeah. nearly half enough with people I find you are more likely to find uh, middle class people who can afford their petrol given out about the price of petrol on the media than talking about the deaths yeah. or the Tory nature, party nature Tory party for yeah. a few weeks I mean it, yeah. the news cycle it's just human nature the, it is yeah, new, it and there's only so much because I mean at the time at the time I tuned into BBC News every night and you know Clive Moray was over there and it was like it was enthralling but over time war war becomes drudgery you know it becomes small gains on, on a certain front and it's very hard to place it because you don't really know the country that well and you kind of hear the odd time, you know, I, I follow I've, I've, uh, Ukraine, uh, Gavin Sheridan's curates a, a Ukraine list on Twitter, which I have on my Twitter. And I, 
and I used to go into it quite frequently and less, I do it less and less now and I go in now and I'm like, I'm not really sure what's going on here anymore and some outlets like the New York Times and Guardian still leave with it every day. It's mm, still very, very centre but I think everywhere else has kind of moved on to them because like, the price, the cost of living crisis which is linked inextricably to Ukraine is important in people's day-to-day -day lives and, and there is only so much um, I think people have a tolerance for and when it comes oh, to yeah, that level sure. of bad news and, and um, misery. Me included, like there's no. Um, yeah, and I was and I was interested in, it in the element in in that side of it, in that you know, with sport helping people here, you know, help helping refugees in Ireland, you know, what effect had it yeah, had on their yeah. lives? And and Irish volleyball actually is was one of the first. It was the first sport, one of the first sports I think to to say we'll give you free membership, we'll give you free gear, you can keep playing, and it's proved a lifeline to this particular kid who gets the Lewis from City West into town and then gets a bus out to training. And that's what that kid is prepared to do. And she's studying here for her junior cert and she studies at night online in Ukraine for her junior cert because it's her junior cert year in Ukraine and she wants to get it as well. Amazing I mean, what people you, do. If you told her that a year ago. Yeah, yeah. Imagine. An amazing interview with Christy O'Connor and Westmead footballer Luke Lachlan in the Sunday Times. So Luke Lachlan is playing in today's Leinster club Quarter final. He was part of the Westmead team that didn't, or that sorry, that won the Talchin Cup in July. He didn't go on the team holiday uh, for very good reason. So Christy O'Connor writes: Lachlan has had to construct a psychological firewall to prevent him from returning to that dark world. He has spent so many years being guided by the demons in his mind that he knows how drink can always forge an opening and make a renewed offer, and how easy alcohol, drugs, and addiction be can be uh, can become his refuge again. So. Uh, Luke Lachlan here is just so open. A few pints was never drinking for me. Being drunk for six or seven days, that was drinking. If I take one drink, I just fast forward five hours in my mind and think where I could be. And I know exactly where I'll be. I'll be taking drugs out of my head, not caring about anyone or anything. So he talks about, you know, he, he's um, been a player in and out of the Westmead side for a long time. Everyone knew I had talent, but everyone also knew I was a heffing, an effing headbanger. Uh, which is uh, sums it up neatly, I suppose. And he was in the panel as a 19 year old uh, and he's just had issues right the way through his 20s um, with alcohol, with gambling, with drugs, a feeling of worthlessness. Um, never knew his father. He had issues with abandonment and rejection, ignored a whole set of other problems around self-esteem and body image. It combusted into a desire for self-destruction. Uh, he would have depressive episodes as well, where he talks about staying in his bed for 10 days on end, not washing, not brushing his teeth, uh, feeling awful. And uh, what seems to have culminated in, in him getting the help he needed uh, in July of 2021, and he's been sober since then, was his mother uh, had texted him and she said she couldn't do it anymore. My mother said she hadn't slept in 10 years because of me. She said the only time she slept was, was, was when I was in a depressive state in bed because she knew where I was and I knew it was time to get help. And he has um, an extraordinary line. I, I, I suspect it's one of those lines you hear in therapy, but it really um, uh, kind of beautifully uh, put. He talks about getting drunk and his problems would only get worse. Then he said, a drunk mind speaks a, a sober heart. A drunk mind speaks a sober heart. When everyone was thinking I was having a great time, I was dying inside. I couldn't face a hangover. I had to keep going. I had to keep out of my mind. I couldn't stay sober because I was in so much pain. But I got to a stage where I couldn't hide it anymore. So uh, last drink in July of 2021 and a year later wins the Talchin Cup at Westmeath and 
seems to be in a great place and Leinster quarter final today uh, you first mentioned that one to us Kleena and yeah. I hadn't heard of Luke Lockton uh, or his story you read that you think oh my god wow yeah um, really really well written by Christy O'Connor and really well told by Luke Lockton and it, I was saying to Roy um, I was talking to Jack Cooney two weeks ago at um, I was working at the Championship 15 which is the, the GA All-Stars for the second tier yeah. um, lower tier teams um, and they gave them a brilliant night deservedly so in Crow Park and um, I ended up talking to Jack Cooney at the end of the night just chatting off the record and and I said to him, was I was really struck by the Westmead players that night. They were just incredibly united. They were incredibly nice. They were they were all lovely. But I just thought these guys are like bro- like they, there's a real brotherhood there. And just just having to say to him like what an amazing achievement. And he's not managing them anymore, of course. So he's moved on and he's working in Crow Park and he's working in coaching and he's obsessed with coaching and people. That's what his big thing is. Mm. And I said to him, God, what a year! You know, what was the biggest thing? And he said, Luke Lachlan, which I thought was really interesting. And he said that we got that guy, that he's safe and that he said the rest of the team had really taken care of him, wow. which was a brilliant, just just really, really great insight into him as a coach and into the rest of them. And then this is this is it from his point of view. And he ended up going down to Coolmura, which uh, anybody who knows anybody who's had alcohol problems, uh, it's one of the one of the main um, addiction recovery centres in Ireland, a tough place to be from all accounts that you read and hear. Um, and that's really finally what helped but obviously the football helped hugely as well um, there's an amazing <laughs> this is an amazing line that um, Cooney got him back into Westmeath in 2019 and um, he walked off during his first training session Cooney dropped him twice during the league but Lachlan started the Division 3 final and that's like that's what I got from Jack was just like he kept pressing this guy because he just knew he could he knew this guy was a good guy he just he just you know really felt he wanted to turn him around and how the rest of the players had helped him but he said um, uh, they he hadn't drunk in two months but a week before the championship Lachlan went out to watch the Champions League final and the switch flicked carnage was an inevitable byproduct and he decided to have a house party right and the selectors arrived at the apartment the next morning and I was inside dancing with a cigarette and a can in my Westmead gear, mm-hmm. you know, and that shows like for somebody who's in the throes of addiction, how easily that switch can flick. You know, it's just uh, incredible. He was Westmead's top scorer against the Dubs yeah. after on the back of an eight day bender, which yeah. Yeah. just shows he was able to, yeah. you know, for a time have it both ways but it caught up and, and like I think in a previous year we might be in here 20 years ago doing a similar slot and that would be kind of a legendary story that he was telling you know more for himself than against himself you know it's it's uh, maybe that's a good sign of how things have uh, you know things have changed and he's able to uh, see, see his problems but I mean the openness in which he's able mm-hmm. to do it it's an incredible piece of work yeah amazing he, he never did an S&C session yeah. this year yeah that's incredible isn't it yeah. and he's playing for the Downs who are who, you know who, who had a big success this year so absolutely brilliant uh, and like he talks about his turning point really was his mother his yeah. mother got through to him and very often families can't even no. even families who, who speak you know as, har- as as honestly as they can they didn't but he says he, 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 had, he had been missing for a week and his mum texted him and uh, he just left a house party high on drugs but her words don't. She said she couldn't do this anymore. My mother said she hadn't slept in 10 years because of me. She said the only time she slept was when I was in a depressive state in bed because she knew where I was. I knew it was time to go. Like, that's how Torture. bad this guy yeah, was. Yeah. And that's and like he says, and he says earlier in it, um, he never knew his father. His mother was his mother and father. You know, he just dearly loves his mother, clearly. But when it's when it's that serious. But, you know, fantastic story. 
wish him well, wish wish he continues to stay clean because mm. that's that's the You're hard part. Yeah. But I can say just on the basis of that night, he's got good friends mm. in the Westmead football team. Uh, just to finish then, because we're, we're out of time, you both liked what Philip Lanigan produced in the Mail on Sunday? Oh, yeah, fantastic. I think mean, we mentioned World War II earlier. He didn't um it's Jimmy Gray. I think he's, he was born in 19... Where have I got it here? Jimmy was born in... Uh, Jimmy Gray, these are two, two legends of Dublin football. They've, they've both kind of recounted their lives in, in books recently. And he sat down with Jimmy Gray and Mickey Whelan. And, Mickey um, and Jimmy Gray was born in 1929, the year of the Wall Street crash. And Mickey Whelan was born in 1939, the year World War, World War II started. And the it's pi- just... It's the, the picture of the two of them, hand around the shoulder... Makes, makes the piece in a way yeah. as well. Yeah. It does and, and, and the yarns. I mean, there's, there are. It, this is not a. Amazing you know, this stories. is not like Luke Lachlan. This is a. This is a, a kind of reeling the years of two men who shaped Dublin GAA along with Kevin Heffernan and a few others over the last, like more than half a century, really. You know, that they've been incredibly influential figures. Um, you know, there's a great story about Christy Ring, who was Unbelievable. Played, you know, there's stories about Charlie Hawhey, there's Jack Charlton, like Mickey ends up, with, uh, uh, you know, in, in with Jack Charlton and the team the night to beat Romania. It's about looking at the word count, what would you say, clean about 3,000 words, oh. maybe four. And virtually it's, everyone it, it's, a gem. And it's great. It's, it's just loads and loads of yarns. Yeah, there's so much insight in it, so much good stories. Two guys who clearly get on really well together. So still, like we don't often get interviews with octogenarians or I don't know how, what even, like what, is Jimmy Gray in his 90s? He probably 93, is. 93, one is 93. One I don't is even know 93. what you call it, a 93-year-old. Yeah. Um, I won't try to make up a word. But, you know, you don't often get people who go back that far and, and clearly recall oh. their lives with great clarity and, and and like they've lived lives. I mean, they were around Heffernan. You know, they, they talk about the, the you know her, the first interaction. One of them, the first interaction he had. Jimmy Gray. Uh, you know, Jimmy Gray's first <laughs> one of Heffernan's first acts to offer him a cigarette. And then later on, he says, I think it's him, or maybe maybe it's Whelan. I'm mixing them up, but he says one of my great regrets is that I smoked. I shouldn't have smoked. And it's one thing I've learned over the years. It's just it's a lovely piece. It's a really good read. I'm very interested in WGA, so it it, it, it appeals. I'm 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 in I'm part of the target market, but I think anyone will get a no, lot from it. I'm not this. from Dublin and I just think it's just a brilliant read. And uh, it just so indicative of why you we should never stop talking to older people as well because they, these two gentlemen, anybody who's ever met them knows how vibrant and how full of life they are and how interested they are in everything. Jimmy worked as chairman of the Dublin County Board but there's just Barbara Bush is in here. I mean, there's yeah. everything in here. Well, um, how's Barbara or Laura Bush? Laura Bush, Laura rather, Bush. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because Bertie was Bertie was with Patrick's Day. Bertie was over in the White House, and um, he was he was away for five days. Yeah, and he loved to be at the club finals. And he he had an aide coming in and out during the meeting, and and. Uh, uh, Laura Bush, First Lady, wondered whether there were alarm bells coming from Ireland. <laughs> she said, Tisha, have you problems at home? And he said, do you know the aide de camp is coming in? And I said, oh, no, no, he's just giving me the scores. <laughs> but it has everything, including, as I said, right, the one that cracked me up is just as they're about to leave. Um, uh, oh, and there's a lovely story about Stephen Cluxton as well, about yeah. how he how he was keeping in touch with Mickey Whelan during lockdown and making sure he did everything he needed. Was he? Yeah, it just, look, I let people read it. It's, it's a really lovely, lovely read. But just everything, as I said, the antithesis to Martin O'Neill, you know, full of humanity, full of love of life, full of brilliant yarns. The Christy Ring stuff is absolutely So what's the Christy amazing. Ring story? Well, well, they, <laughs> they ended up, they end, they end up on a tour um, with, with uh, Christy Ring um, and All Stars, an American invitation thing. But Ring played football as well as hurling, which I didn't know. In his 50s. He was 50 at the time. Yeah. And um, 
he he went over and at halftime he called Mick O'Connell and myself over. I didn't come down here to lose. He said fifty years of age, <laughs> and he said to Mickey, he said to Mick, oh, every ball you bet, you better give it to him, and you better score. And then there's a brilliant story about him meeting uh, Christy Riggs subsequently um, off the field. This is Jimmy, and uh, he's down. He left one on Jimmy. He left the, that was the that he left one on Jimmy in the game. He oh, basically that's right. took him yeah. out of the game. Yeah, he took him. When Dublin played Cork, and then a couple of years later. <laughs> He, he, he meets him at, yeah he meets him he was down at the sugar company and Etna Hawhey who was Charlie's sister was the receptionist and she said there's a gentleman over there asking for you and it was Christy Ring whose niece had applied for a job and he was saying listen that young lassie of mine she's the best one for that job uh, you better make sure she gets it and don't forget the lesson I taught you in Cork that day <laughs> and it's just like because Christy Ring definitely was just a man who was obsessed. Tough I mean, man. Out, I yeah. mean, hard as nails, you know. But it's just, uh, it's just brilliant, you know. Just, it's just exactly what you want to read if you want to get insight. And they're apparently both of them, I think, have books coming out in the in the hero books, you know, which yeah. is um, um, Liam Hayes's company does them, and some of them are really fantastic. And they, it looks as if both of those might have a book coming out. But it's very hard. I don't know whether you find that right. It's very hard when you interview two people together to put it together. Mm. Well, it takes ages. And Philip just does such a good job here. Like he, the, the quality of the writing is so good because he manages to get so much in. Okay. Very good. That's a good note to finish on. I think we are out of time. Rory O'Connor, thank you very much. Clean Foley, thanks, guys. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball.